You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This episode features Sam Aubrey, who is a global speaker for Ravi Zacharias Ministries and also a pastor based in Maidenhead, England. He recently spoke at our Together for the Gospel pre-conference on the Nashville Statement, which was released last fall. The title of his talk is, And the Two Shall Become One Flesh, Thinking Biblically About Homosexuality and the Covenant of Marriage. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you for coming along and for, for caring about these issues. Um, I'm just trying to get my clock to work. There we are. Um, so our topic for this final session is thinking biblically about homosexuality and the covenants of marriage. So I want to begin by, uh, we've already had one reference to two and three-year-old children. I want to talk about my friend's two-year-old daughter called Hannah, who is a delightful little girl most of the time. Uh, there are moments where the inner two-year-old expresses itself unmistakably. I affectionately refer to her in those moments as Kim Il Hannah because she kind of has this slight North Korean despotic manner about her at times. And I remember going around, mealtimes tend to be the most tense moments. So I remember going around there for, for, for food one evening, and my friend said, don't worry, today's going to be, it's going to be so good because we've made her her favorite food. There's going to be no drama at the dinner table. Uh, we've made her spaghetti. She told us just last week, spaghetti is her absolute favorite. So it's going to be fine. So anyway, we enjoyed uh, beginning dinner, and then it became very quickly apparent that spaghetti was no longer acceptable. Uh, A new edict was issued throughout the realm with immediate effect that spaghetti was not to be presented as an offering for dinner for this little girl, or words to that effect. And my friend was beside him, so he was like, "But, but you said this was your favorite. Just last week, you said this was your favorite. And she replied, and I I paraphrase, that I reserve the right at any moment without any prior notice to change my opinions on what is and is not acceptable, and you are required to abide by all current and future strictures on this issue. (laughs) Or again, words to that effect. (laughs) And so it it was a a fairly tense mealtime as um, these things. This is... I always think gift of singleness at times like that. Um, there are certain blessings to being single. Not having to negotiate with a, a two-year-old is one of them. Now, the trouble we have is so many people think that the God of the Bible is like that two-year-old girl. There are things that are, are acceptable, things that are unacceptable, and it's entirely arbitrary. And so the perception many people have is that the the biblical prohibitions on homosexuality, if they even acknowledge and recognize them, are just kind of arbitrary. God's just randomly decided, oh, I do like these things and I don't like those things. And it's just part of this kind of random mix of do's and don'ts that the Bible gives us. And so it's important as we try to navigate this issue that we don't just reflect what the Bible teaches, but recognize there is a rationale to what the Bible teaches. It's not arbitrary, it's not God being mean, but there is a coherence, even a beauty, to what God says on these issues, as indeed on on what he says on any issue. And so that's the the reason I I take it for the topic uh, in this session, because we need to see what the Bible says about homosexuality within a wider context 
And that wider context is what the Bible says about the covenant of marriage. So I want us to begin just by thinking about what Jesus teaches on these things. Dr. Mola drew our attention to Matthew 19. I want us to spend just a few more moments in that passage. So if you've got a, a Bible to hand or on a, in a device, do find your way to Matthew chapter 19. These are some of the most important words in the Bible on this whole issue. And we need to understand what Jesus is teaching us here. Matthew uh, 19, verses uh, 3 and following. Uh, We're told in Matthew 19, verse 3, that the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him. Uh, The Pharisees are approaching Jesus not to learn from him, not to listen to him, not to glean from his wisdom, but simply to to test him, to trap him. Uh, They present to him what would have been their equivalent of of a journalist's gotcha question. They've, they've come up with a question, they think whatever Jesus says, they can use it as ammunition against him. So they say to him in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, this was not a hypothetical issue. Rabbis were teaching that very thing uh, in some of the places there. And so they present this question to Jesus because whatever his answer is, they will find a reason to clobber him. If Jesus says... Yeah, it's fine. Just divorce your wife. Any reason at all, that's no problem. They can say, well, Jesus, you are very soft on sin. What about, you know, the the sanctity of marriage? But if Jesus says, well, no, of course you can't. You can't just divorce your wife for any reason. That's, That's ridiculous. They can reply to him then and say, well, Jesus, you are, you're really out of step with much of contemporary society. And in fact, we're told in verse 1 precisely where it is when they ask this question. We are now away from Galilee. We're in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This is the jurisdiction of of King Herod. So if Jesus starts presenting conservative teaching on the sanctity of marriage, they can just phone up the police and say, well, hey, can you put us through to, to the king? Because if he's got a spare platter in his cupboard, we have another head. He might want to put on it. Well, Jesus responds to this question, and he does a number of things, and we need to acknowledge and learn from what Jesus does. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife at any cause? Jesus answers, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus replies by firstly going back to Genesis 1. From the beginning he who created them made the male and female. Then Genesis 2, that quotation, therefore a man will leave his father and mother. But notice, I think the very first thing Jesus does is he pokes fun at them. Uh, Pharisees were uh, kind of prided themselves on how well they knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Jesus says, have you not read, and then goes to Genesis 1, it's, it's his way of saying, listen, when you studied the Bible, did you, did you get as far as page 1? <laughs> did, did you make it as far as Genesis chapter 1, verse 27? But notice what else Jesus is doing, and this goes back to uh, Dr. Duncan's point from earlier on. Jesus 
shows them again the authority of Scripture. Look carefully at what Jesus says. Verse 4, have you not read that he who created them has done two things? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Verse 5, and said, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That quotation in verse 5 is from what the narrator of Genesis writes. And Jesus attributes it to the Creator. If Moses wrote it, as far as Jesus is concerned, God says it. And so Jesus, by appealing to Genesis, is not just going back to the best of ancient human wisdom. Jesus is saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is the Creator's blueprint. This is an authority of Scripture issue. But notice too, Jesus is asked about divorce, but he doesn't answer by talking about divorce. He answers by talking about marriage. But to talk about marriage in verse 5, he has to talk about creation in verse 4. You're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage, but you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand how the Creator has made us as male and female. It is because the Creator from the beginning has made them male and female, it is because of that that we have this thing called marriage. Jesus is not saying that because we're male and female, we must all get married. But he is saying we only get married because we have been created male and female. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, marriage is by definition between a man and a woman. It's predicated on our sexual difference as male and female. Uh, that is obviously extraordinarily countercultural in our own time. It's worth bearing in mind that Jesus' teaching on marriage has been countercultural in every culture. But it's also worth bearing in mind because, I, as I want to say to, to friends of mine who think very differently to this issue, I'm just following Jesus. However else we may nuance our definition of Christian, it, it can't be less than or other than following Jesus. And so when a friend says to me, you just mustn't think that anymore, I have to say to them, what you are actually telling me to do is to stop following Jesus Christ. So tell me, do you have the authority to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus Christ? If you do, can you please tell me what you have going for you that he doesn't have going for him, such that I should follow your lead and not his? So Jesus teaches that it is because we are made as male and female, that is the reason we have marriage. A man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus draws attention to the union. The union of the man and the woman is unique because it alone is a one flesh union. Jesus is not commenting here on the capacity or potential for people of the same sex to have feelings of, of romance and, and faithfulness to one another. 
He's talking about the type of union that results. Sometimes I've, I've heard Christians defend this definition of marriage by saying that people of the same sex just can't love each other in the same way that people who are of different sex can. The problem with that is I know plenty of gay couples that are, are stable and faithful and plenty of heterosexual couples that are not. Now the issue here is the kind of union that results. There is something about this union that is distinctive. So much so that it's not designed to be undone. What God does with the man and the woman within the covenant of marriage is he makes them one flesh in a way that they're no longer designed to be able to be pulled apart from each other. Well, as Jesus goes on to explain more about this, the disciples in verse 10 uh, get cold feet. So they say to Jesus in verse 10, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Interesting. That is their response. When Jesus shows the implications of what it means to be one flesh, the disciples say, ha, that, that sounds a bit like commitment. <laughs> that sounds serious. Maybe it's better not to marry. Now, here's the interesting observation. For, for those of us in the room who are, are preachers, I get to preach on marriage fairly of, often. I, I get to take weddings from time to time. It's a, a perk of being a pastor. Here's the thing. Never once when I have taught on marriage have people come up to me afterwards and said, hey, if that's the case between a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Which begs the uncomfortable question, am I teaching marriage in the way that Jesus is? Our assumption today is, is singleness and celibacy is untenable and cruel. Marriage is easy, so let's make marriage as available as possible. The assumption here, when we understand what Jesus says about marriage, is no, marriage is difficult. Marriage ain't easy. And so the disciples say, maybe it's just better not to marry. And Jesus' response to that isn't to say, yes, live together first for a bit and see how it goes. No, the moment they question getting married, Jesus talks about eunuchs. Jesus talks about people who are celibate. That is the godly alternative to male-female marriage that Jesus has just been outlining. Now, it's important for us to see this for, for all sorts of reasons, but not the least of which is to show that Jesus is not neutral when it comes to sexual ethics. We've heard about, a bit about this already, but there's a myth doing the rounds today that Jesus was just kind of tolerant when it comes to issues of sex and marriage, that the Old Testament was medieval, Paul got out of the wrong side of bed or just didn't know enough about homosexuality, but Jesus was just kind of fine with everything. The fact is Jesus takes the Old Testament sexual ethic and doesn't loosen it, he intensifies it. And so the issue really is, is not on what Paul does or doesn't know about what we think of as homosexuality today. The issue is what does Jesus say about marriage? Even if we had no other passages in the Bible 
that talked about homosexuality, if we didn't have Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or Leviticus or anything else, we would still know what to think about this issue based entirely on what Jesus teaches about marriage. So that begs the question, what is it about that union that gives it such a special accolade in Jesus' theology? And the answer to that is, the story of the Bible shows us why that union is so significant. So I want to move secondly to to what the storyline of the Bible shows us about marriage. Um, I went to the the movie theatre a couple of days ago. It's one of my favourite things to do. I love every aspect of it. I love having a a bucket of Coke. Uh, We don't have quite the same things in in the UK, but it's just, just enjoying the full experience. And I love the movie trailers. Uh, That, to me, is a public service. It's a bit like when you were a student and you had to do a report on the book and you took it out of the library and someone else had already gone to the trouble of underlining the key bits for you so you didn't have to read the whole thing. This is the equivalent to that. Someone has watched the movie, pulled out the the salient parts so that you now don't have to watch that movie. Saves you a lot of work. Well, the Bible begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and it ends with the marriage supper of Christ and the Lamb. And what the Bible shows us is that first marriage is the trailer for the last marriage. So in Genesis 1, we have this account of creation. It's it's all wide-angle lens, epic in scale. It's vast and sweeping and cosmic. And then all of a sudden in Genesis 2, we're suddenly dropped into a garden where a guy and a girl get together. And the question is, why are we suddenly there? After this massive introduction in Genesis 1, why are we suddenly in this particular place where this particular thing is happening? And the answer is because it's a clue to what the rest of the Bible is about. The man and the woman belong together. They've literally been made for one another. Uh, The theologian N.T. Wright has observed that in Genesis 1 there are a set of complementarities. There's heaven and earth, there's the sea and the land, there's the sun and the moon, there's male and female. And he points out that what happens with that final pair is a picture of what is going to happen with the first pair. That the union of the man and the woman in marriage is a picture of the eventual union of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And we see this as the Bible unfolds. God is revealed not just to be the the big authority in the sky, but... He's a groom. He's not just come to rule, he's come to win a people to himself. And by implication, his people are not just, not just his servants, they are his bride. Sadly, often his wayward and unfaithful bride. When Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament, one of the, the first terms he uses to describe himself in Mark's gospel is the bridegroom. He says, the bridegroom has come. I am that wooing God, that wooing husband from the Old Testament. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 shows us that just as a man joins himself to his wife and the two become one flesh, so he who joins himself to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. There is a parallel between the one flesh union of a man and a woman and the one spirit union of Jesus and the believer. 
Uh, famously in Ephesians 5, Paul is teaching on husbands and wives, and he steps back and says, guys, I'm, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church. That's what this is about. And of course, the Bible reaches its, its beautiful, glorious climax with the wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride. The city comes down from heaven to earth as a bride adorned for her husband. That is the storyline of the Bible. God is making a people for his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible is all about that beautiful, eventual, glorious marriage that is to come. So let me run through a few implications of this. Uh, firstly, it shows us the definition of marriage we should have. Marriage must be, by definition, heterosexual. It is the union of two complementary but distinctive parties. As Kevin DeYoung points out in his book, the union of a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, cannot picture and anticipate the union of Jesus and the church. You cannot change your view of marriage without ultimately changing the gospel that marriage points to. And more than that, it shows us that we believe what we believe about homosexuality because we believe what we believe about marriage. The Bible doesn't give us a theology of homosexuality. It's not a big enough category to carry that. The Bible gives us a theology of marriage. And what the Bible then teaches about homosexuality is but one outworking of what it teaches us about marriage. But more than that, this also shows us marriage must be covenantal. Uh, we're very conscious of the, the legal redefinition of marriage that has recently taken place. There was a prior, also major redefinition of marriage that took place before then. And that's when marriage went from being based on covenant promise to being effectively a romantic contract. Uh, for most people today, marriage is not much more than a public celebration and acknowledgement of the romantic feelings at the moment, two, one day, who knows, people have for one another. Uh, that is what marriage is to most people. And if that's what marriage is, then why should your relationship have its moment in the sun and be celebrated by everybody else, but not someone else's relationship? But in the Bible, marriage is covenantal because it is a set of unconditional promises that reflect the promises God has made to us in Christ. Putting it another way, most people today by marriage mean, I love the way you make me feel, and I seem to make you feel that too, and as long as that's the case, we're good. But if that ceases to be the case, one or either of us can happily step out of this. And so my question is, aren't you glad God doesn't treat us like that? You are my people as long as I just feel the warm fuzzies about having you as my people. No, God is a God of covenant promise, and he's built into the fabric of human society a sign of that. I mentioned I get to take weddings. 
One of my conditions is that the couple may not write their own vows. Uh, in my experience, if a couple write their own vows, those vows almost always entirely miss the point of what the marriage ceremony is about. They're not going to write vows about covenant promises. They're going to write vows about how they feel. We know how you feel. Okay? We don't need 17 stanzas of bad poetry to know how you feel. What we're interested in is what are you intending for that other person? Are you going to stick around when the going gets tough or not? Are you going to love them when they don't deserve your love anymore? And when they don't seem as lovable as they do now? Like marriage, because of what it points to, means that it must be heterosexual, it must be covenantal. But as well as this, we also see the perspective on marriage we should have. The purpose of human marriage is to point beyond itself to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his church. And that means human marriage is not ultimate. It's penultimate. It is a temporal model of the real thing that is found in Christ. But the propensity of fallen human nature is always to mistake the model for the reality. So let me just massively lower the, the cultural tone by quoting from Derek Zoolander. <laughs> if you've seen the first Zoolander movie, you don't have to publicly acknowledge that you have. Uh, it's, the, the premise of Zoolander is that the, the better looking you are, the more stupid you are. I personally find that very offensive, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the main character is a, a male model who is there, very good-looking and therefore very stupid. And in one scene, they're going to they're build a school in his honour. And so they, they have the, the model set up. They invite him to come in and see the architect's model. He comes in, looks at it, and he's furious. And I can hear you thinking the line, some of you, in your heads right now. He says, is this a school for ants? It's far too small. It needs to be at least three times bigger than this. <laughs> and the stupidity of the scene is he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And we see the absurdity of that when it's Derek Zoolander, but we so easily fall into the same mistake when it comes to marriage. We think marriage is going to fulfill us. We think marriage is going to meet all of our needs. If you marry someone thinking that person is going to fulfill you, you are going to be a nightmare to be married to. If we recognize what marriage points to, it helps us to do two things at the same time. It helps us to dignify marriage. Because of what it reflects, it matters. It's not trivial. But at the same time, because it points to something else, we won't idolize it. We won't, we won't worship it. I married a, a lovely couple at church a, a year or so ago. And as I was speaking to them in the, in the middle of the, the wedding service, uh, I was invited to preach. I just felt led to say to them, listen, if at any point you feel disappointed in your marriage, 
please bear in mind that's because you are supposed to. It's not meant to fulfill you. It's meant to point to the thing that will fulfill you. And friends, if we have a proper understanding of marriage, it will actually enable us to honour singleness as well. If marriage ultimately points to what is ultimate, actually it protects us from demeaning singleness as being somehow a kind of missing the main point of the Christian life. Uh, Jesus says there will be no human marriage in heaven. We will not marry or be given in marriage. We will have the reality. We won't need the signpost. And so by foregoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating that future reality and of testifying to its goodness. It's a way of saying that reality is both so good and so real, I can live according to it now. I can skip the appetizer if I know I don't have long to wait for the entree. And so if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. It is a way of saying that sexual and romantic companionship are not ultimate, despite what our culture thinks. And therefore, singleness is not a waste of the fact that God has made us as, as sexual beings. Actually, it is a wonderful way of fulfilling it. Your sexual desires don't need to be met in order for their purpose to be fulfilled. If you enable those desires to point you to the deeper desire for the greater consummation that is to come. And finally, this view of marriage helps us to see that there are always positives behind the negatives. Whenever the Bible gives us a prohibition, it is always in the service of a greater good. Whenever we encounter a thou shalt not, it is because there is something beautiful and good that that prohibition protects and guards for us. Uh, building on what Dr. Duncan said earlier, there are so many people in our churches, particularly younger people, who are in one sense biblically convinced on this issue, but they are not emotionally convinced, which means they won't remain biblically convinced. And part of the reason for that is no one has ever told them the goodness of God's Word. All they've heard is, is various prohibitions. And so it means that they're at the point where they can say, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but it, it kind of sounds awful. But the Bible has those prohibitions precisely because it has a positive vision of human sexuality that meets its fulfillment in Jesus and the church. People are not going to care if the biblical sexual ethic is true, if they don't think it's good. And so in this area of life, as in any other, we want people to taste and see that the Lord our God is good. When he says no to certain things, it's because he says a much bigger yes to something else. 
He's not like a petulant child, arbitrarily deciding he doesn't like certain things. He's a God whose goodness is tasted and manifested in every word that he gives us to live by. Often and sometimes especially in the hard words. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.